Well, my kids have been out of school for about four and a half months now, and you might be thinking, yeah, but Clayton, wasn't some of that time like online learning? As I said, my, my kids have been out of school for about four and a half months now, and there's about a, a month left. We're, we're in the home stretch. If you know, in our school district, we've got a month left. Uh, it's, it's coming soon, and uh, then we're free, right? you know, for maybe a day or a week, who knows, you know, and then it's may, maybe it'll be right back to where we were. I don't know, but school is approaching. And so in light of that, uh, over the next month, we're, we're going to be engaging our minds. All right. We're going to be preparing and practicing, you know, to, to get ready for school. Now you might be like, Hey, listen, but I've been out of school for a long time. I didn't want to go back. I never want to go back. And I totally get that. Like I, I graduated my, my high school uh, reunion, 20 year high school reunion was this summer. And I know you're like, Clayton, you look 20. I get it. I know. I know that, but I've been out of high school for 20 years, graduated college, uh, 2003. I went to a couple years of seminary while I was working full time. And, uh, I'm right there with you. I don't really want to go back, uh, to school. But the problem with that is, as Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord, your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. We're to love the Lord, our God as followers of Jesus. We're to love the Lord, our God with all of our minds. It means we've got to engage our minds and there's so much to learn about God in his word that he wants us to know. Here's the problem though with that is that today a lot of popular preaching, a lot of preaching from our more famous pastors, which is just a weird thing in and of itself to be a famous Pastor, that uh, doesn't really make sense in the kingdom of God, but, but for lack of a better word, for a lot of the popular or famous preaching is not this. It just isn't. It's not engaging your mind. It might engage your emotions. It might inspire you. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. The problem is a lot of popular preaching or famous preaching today can be void of the truth of God's word. And so we don't gauge whether or not a message is good or preaching is good or whatever is good if it's entertaining or if it's inspiring to me. No, I mean, I can be inspired by things that are wrong. No, we, we gauge whether or not something is good is if it's true. And a lot of popular preaching today is about entertainment and it's about inspiration. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. The problem with those things is that they tend to lead to an error on the side of self-centeredness, selfishness, and that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. When you make the Bible about you, when you make the gospel about you, uh, when you make this life about you. And that's just kind of the nature of entertaining or inspirational preaching. It kind of makes it more about you. And so let me just tell you real quick what our philosophy is regarding preaching and worship, kind of the filter that we want to use, that we seek to use. First, we want something to be God-centered. We want it to be about the glory of God. In other words, it's making God famous. Even the new covenant, the gospel, God said, and he prophesied it to Jeremiah. He said, hey, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. He said, hey, don't, don't think this is about you or for your sake. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. It's for my sake, actually. You keep defaming my name among the nations. In other words, you, my people, are an embarrassment to me, and you keep defaming my name among the nations, and uh, you're not making me famous. So I'm going to put my spirit inside of you and my spirit is gonna move you to follow me and worship me and live for me and obey me. I'm gonna move you from the inside out. I'm gonna transform who you are from the inside out so that you live for my name and for my glory. And God says, this new covenant that I'm gonna make with you is all about me. Don't think it's, God says, don't think it's about you. He actually says that. This is about me. And so all the scripture is about God. It's his, his story of redemption of sinful man. So we, we want preaching and worship at the same time to be about God. It's God-centered. Secondly, we want it to be Jesus-centered. Jesus said the, all of the scripture points to him. All the, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, all of it. Jesus said it's all about me. And so we believe the Bible is Christocentric, which just means Jesus-centered. It's all about Jesus the Jesus Storybook Bible, a popular kids Bible that we use here a lot at our church. I love it. On the cover of it, it says every story whispers his name. 
Every story, everything we read in the scripture, it's either talking about the coming of Jesus, it's a picture of the coming of Jesus, it's about Jesus, or it's talking about how Jesus has come, or it's talking about how Jesus is going to return, but it's all about Jesus. And then finally, we want preaching and worship to be Bible-centered. Bible-centered. And here's what we mean by that. It means we start with the scripture and then that determines what we say and believe and think and sing, okay? Instead, here's the other way that some people will do this. I I live and think and believe and sing and now I'm gonna find scripture to back up what I'm saying. That's a great way to get yourself in trouble, okay? That's called today, it's a new term, but it's called narcissus. It's reading yourself, myself, into the scripture. It's starting with me in my life and then finding out what in the scripture supports me, backs me up, and affirms me. The theological term actually is eisegesis. It's where I start with my life and I come to the scripture. Rather than exegesis, which is what we believe and it's what we seek to do, we start with the scripture, we read the scripture, we believe the scripture is actually saying something. It can be applied in a lot of different ways, but it's actually saying something. It's saying what God wants it to say. And so I've got to figure out what is God saying? Okay, now how does that apply to my life? How do I think, live, and act, and even sing differently in light of what the scripture is saying? Now, if you're here and you're like, what about the Holy Spirit? Uh, Man, I'm so glad you asked that because the role of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is to remind us of the things that Jesus said, is to help us to live for the glory of Jesus, it's to help us to be a witness about Jesus, it's to help us live out the things that we read in the scripture. And so those are some of the things the, the Holy Spirit does. But what we've said as a church is that we want to be a city on a hill. And that means We're a light, this city, these people that follow Jesus are a light for those who are in darkness. And over the last couple of years, we've we've talked about that some. What does this city look like? What does that that mean? Well, over the last couple of years, we've kind of honed in on what we think this means. This city is a people, because people live in a city. It's a people of grace and truth. So John said about Jesus, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was that perfect mix. He was that perfect blend of grace and truth. Just like he's fully God and fully man, he's fully grace and fully truth. He's that perfect supernatural mix of grace and truth. And as his followers, we should seek to be the same, a people of grace and truth. Well, to be a people of truth, we've got to know the truth. We've got to understand the truth. We've got to learn the truth. So in this series, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Christian basics that every Christian should know. It doesn't mean that you do know it. It just means you need to know it. You should know it. Christian basics that every Christian needs to know and should know. And so when we talk about that, we're talking about doctrine, the things that we believe as Christians, that the Bible teaches us. Now, historically, most of the major doctrine, the major beliefs in Christianity have been put into creeds. That's the name of the series. A creed is a statement of different theological truths that we believe as Christians. And there's been a lot of them throughout church history that talk about all the major Christian doctrines that we believe as Christians. And so what we've said is that a creed is a theological fat guy in a little coat. Now, if you've seen Tommy Boy, you get the reference. If you haven't seen Tommy Boy, you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? But uh, Tommy Boy was Chris Farley. He's a big dude. He put on uh, Richard's little jacket and he's got it on and he's singing fat guy in a little coat and he breaks the coat, okay? So, so a creed, theologically speaking, is a fat guy in a little coat. It's a lot. It's a bunch of truth that's wrapped up into this nice statement that helps us to know and remember that doctrine. And so a doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us about a particular topic. So I hope you've got some time because we're going to be here for like 48 hours. Okay. While we do, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we will be taking the next few weeks to dive into this doctrine that we're going to cover that I'll tell you about here in just a second, but this is important doctrine, these basics, these creed statements that we've made, we, we did this last summer when we talked about the doctrine of the word of God. We're going to continue this summer. These things are important. This is the Ephesians 4 strong, firm foundation that keeps you from being blown back and forth when the storm comes. These are the, the unshakable truths that will allow you to stay firm and grounded in a shaky world. And as pastors and teachers, 
which is what I am, Paul said in Ephesians chapter four, it's my job to help equip you for ministry and help give you that foundation that you can stand on so that you're not blown back and forth by every storm that comes along. And Paul says, and by the false teachings of men that will come your way. You need to know these truths so that when you hear a pastor, an author, whoever saying something that doesn't match up with God's word, you've got this filter to say, nope, nope, that's, that's true, but that's error. This is true, but that's wrong. You need that filter. It's God's word. And one of the ways we can help you develop that filter to spot false teaching, to spot false teachers, which are abundant in our culture today, then you've got to know basic Christian theology so that you can judge it. So as we get started, three assumptions, all right? First two are from last summer. The third one will address what we're gonna talk about in this series. But here's the first assumption. The God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and that he is spoken. In other words, he's revealed himself, his purposes and ways in the Bible, okay? That's the first assumption before we get started. It's the first assumption I'm making. It's the first assumption I'm making about you as a follower of Jesus, okay? Is that we believe that the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and that he has spoken, he's revealed himself, his purposes and ways in the Bible. Therefore, the second assumption, therefore, the Bible is true and it is our only standard of truth, right and wrong. It is the only, I'll say, not your favorite Christian author, the Bible is the only standard of truth, of right and wrong. And so we covered some of those things and a lot more last summer when we talked about the doctrine of the word of God. That's on our app. It's on our podcast. You can go catch it if you missed it. But that leads us to the third assumption. And here it is before we get started. The third assumption is this. So then disobeying God's word is disobeying God himself. First assumption the God in the Bible exists and that he's revealed himself. We, we wouldn't know this God unless he had revealed himself, unless he had spoken, right? Otherwise we'd be left to guess. We'd be left to guess about who God is and what he's like and what happens after we die. That's every other religion on the face of the planet. It's, it's man's best guess. But the scripture says all the scriptures God breathed. The Bible says this is the word of God. And so in the Bible, we, we get to know God, his purposes and his ways. So it's the only standard of truth. It's our only standard of right and wrong. So then it only logically follows that to disobey God's word in any way is disobeying God himself. So in this series, here's what we're covering. We're covering the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of sin. And if you're following along in our app, now's the time. If you're not to jump that out, uh, get that out, follow along with us. Just click message notes. If you don't have the app, download the City Church Lubbock. You can fill in the blank with the words in all caps as we go. Uh, the verses are there. And then we've added some, especially for this series, some comment boxes where you can take your own notes kind of in each section. And then when you're done at the very end, you'll see there's a button where you can email yourself all the notes that you took today. So you can keep this and take this with you. So third assumption, disobeying God's word is disobeying God's self. And so we're covering the doctrine of sin. Now, as followers of Jesus who have the Holy Spirit and every follower of Jesus does, as followers of Jesus who have the Holy Spirit, we should firmly resolve in our minds to abandon as false any idea, attitude, or action which is found to be clearly contradicted by the teaching of Scripture. If to disobey God's word is to disobey God himself, then as followers of Jesus who have the Holy Spirit, that should totally make sense to you. Well, then of course, I got to abandon Every idea, action, and behavior, attitude, thought, I've got to abandon those things as false and as sinful if the Bible clearly talks about that and says that it's sin. I must, I must abandon that. I must pray for the Holy Spirit to help me turn from that sin and to run towards holiness. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. It gives us a passion and desire for holiness that we did not have before. So if you got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter four. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be on the screen. Again, they're in the message notes on our app. Genesis chapter four. Today, we're gonna to be looking at the first occurrence of the word sin. Not the first sin, that would be Adam and Eve. And we talked about that in our, our Snake Crusher series uh, last Christmas. We talked about the first sin, but now we're gonna look at the first occurrence of the word 
sin in the scripture to help us learn more about sin. So this is in Genesis chapter four, verse seven, but let me give you some context and set this up. Adam and Eve have had kids, two of those of which are Cain and Abel. They're two brothers. And um, they get jealous of each other. They fight just like any other brother. And uh, they bring out the best in each other. How many of you have a brother? Okay, I have three. How many of you know, I see my kids back there. They got their hands up. Yes, you guys have brothers, yeah. How many of you know a brother just brings out the best in you, right? They just, they just make you say the best things. They just bring out the best thoughts and actions, right? I mean, that's what brothers do. Wrong, okay? I had three brothers. I grew up with three brothers. Uh, we did not bring out the best in each other as we were growing up. I never thought we would be friends. Now we have a great relationship. We're great friends. Uh, but brothers have a way of just bringing thoughts and words and actions out of you you didn't even know were there. Well, it's the same true. The same thing is true for Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve sinned by taking this apple and eating from the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because they wanted to be like God. But then their sin affects their kids. And how many of you know that the sin of your parents has affected you? And how many of you as parents know that your sin oftentimes affects and has consequences on your own kids. Well, we see that playing out right here because sin, as it always does, it goes further and it gets darker than you ever could have possibly imagined. And now Cain and Abel are on the scene. Abel, the younger brother, offers a sacrifice to God and Cain, the older brother, not to be upstaged by his younger brother. And if you have a younger brother, you know what I'm talking about, right? Or if you've been the older brother, you know what I'm talking about. You're not gonna let his younger brother upstage him, make a sacrifice to God. I'm gonna make a better sacrifice to God. Mine's gonna be better and stronger and faster. I mean, I'm, mine's gonna be better. And so Cain makes his sacrifice to God. Now, God accepts the sacrifice that Abel brings. He rejects the sacrifice that Cain brings. Now we're not really told why, but I have my own guess. People have taken a lot of guesses as to why. My, my guess is this, is that God always is looking past the outward show of things right into our hearts. And we see that all throughout the scripture. God's always looking past the outward sign and show and religious stuff. He's looking past that and he's looking into your heart. God cares about your heart. And so my guess is, is that Abel came to God with a humble and genuine heart and Cain came to God with an arrogant and proud and religious heart. And so God rejects his sacrifice. Cain is upset. And so now Genesis chapter four, verse seven, God says to Cain, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. And the idea in Hebrew here is that there's this murderous, bloodthirsty, scary, dangerous beast on the other side of this door that you can't see that is ready to pounce on you and take you out. That's what's happening here. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. You must master sin. And we'll talk about this last line in week three, freedom from sin, repentance from sin. But we're going to focus on today. What, what is sin and what does sin do? God says sin is crouching at the door, ready to ambush you, ready to control you. And so what happens next? Cain lures his brother Abel out into a field where he thinks no one is watching. But someone's watching, right? Someone's always watching. God sees Cain's sin that he thinks done is private. He sees it and he punishes Cain for his sin. Sin gets darker and more evil the further we go down this path. And it's done nothing but get darker and more evil as each generation passes since Adam and Eve. So what is sin and what does sin do? First of all, sin is defined by God. You don't get to define it. You don't get to define what sin is and what it isn't, what's right and what's wrong. Sin is defined by God. We don't look to popular opinion 
to find out what sin is. We don't look to culture to define sin. We don't look to Congress to define what sin is. We don't look to a president to define what sin is. No, God has defined sin for us in his word. He's revealed it to us. And so our response is to agree with God. Sin is defined by God. In Hebrew, the Hebrew word for sin here in Genesis 4, verse 7, is katah. It means to sin against or to dishonor God. It can also mean to sin against or to dishonor man, mankind. And God says in Genesis chapter 4, sin wants to control you. What this means is that sin, these sinful desires that are inside all of us, want to rule us, control us, and then define us. Sin wants us to actually define ourselves in terms of sin. And I'll explain this more to you in a second, but, but we're seeing this rampant today in our culture. That whatever desire you have becomes something you identify as or identify with. That's, that's not God's plan. That's sinful. That's sin controlling you mastering you and making you identify with it. These desires are best understood as basic instincts that can take on many different forms depending on the person. So Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines sin as this, and this is the Systematic theology that's used at the seminaries that I went to. It's used in a lot of seminaries all around the country. But here's what he says, the definition of sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin includes not only individual acts, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. So Wayne Grudem says that sin is a failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, behavior. And we see some examples of the moral law of God. First of all, in the 10 commandments, God gave Moses to the nation of Israel, these 10 commandments of summary of the law of God, the moral law of God. And it said things like, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you're, you're not going to worship, love, be allegiant to serve anything before me. I am God and God alone. I'm the one true and living God. You will serve me, worship me, love me. Follow. You, that's, that's for me and me alone. No one else, no thing else, even if it's a good thing, will take my place on the throne. You shall have no gods before me. It said things like, remember the Sabbath and, and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder do not steal, do not covet, do not commit adultery, do not lie. These are some of the things in the 10 commandments. In the new covenant, we see Paul listing out some sins similar to these. In Romans 1 verse 29, Paul says this, speaking of those who rebel against God, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, they hate God, they are insolent, they are proud, they are boastful. So even being boastful is sinful to God. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They are heartless and have no mercy. So even not being merciful is sinful in the eyes of God. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, Paul says this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5 verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity and lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, Quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, and wild parties. These are all sinful. They break the law of God and thus incur the curse of sin, which is death. That's why Paul said people who live like this won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
because the punishment of sin, the curse of sin is death. Now, as a Christian, you might say, well, wait a second, I struggle with some of those things. And it's probably true because you're like me. And I'm like, I read some of this and I'm like, oh, man, that kind of, some of that describes me sometimes. And we'll talk more about that here in just a second. But as Christians, we, we may struggle with some of these things, but it's not who we are anymore. We, we struggle from the position as of a child, a child of God, and we may struggle with sin, but it's no longer who we are. It no longer defines us. And we'll talk more about that here in just a second, but let's just put a nice bow, a creed statement on everything that we just talked about. Easy to understand a theological fat guy in a little coat. All right, you ready? Here we go. Here it is. Failing to love God and others by not honoring them the way they deserve. That's sin. It's a failing to love God and others by not honoring them the way they deserve. And I hope you can see in that statement, Jesus's first and second commandment, right? Jesus said that for the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is, is equally as important. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love people, love God. A failure to do so in the way they deserve is sin. Secondly, sin is hated by God. Sin is hated by God. Wayne Grudem goes on to say in his systematic theology regarding his definition of sin, that to define sin as a failure to conform to the moral law of God is to say that sin is simply more than just painful and destructive. And it is in our lives. It's also wrong in the deepest sense of the word and a universe created by God. Sin ought not to be. It shouldn't exist. Sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. It contradicts his holiness, and so he must hate it. Sin contradicts God himself and his very nature. God is eternally holy and righteous and just. And so when you and I sin, we have offended and broken the law of an eternally holy and righteous and just God. That's why your sin carries eternal consequences because of who you've offended. You've offended an eternal God who is eternally holy. And so God in his holiness must hate sin. It is completely contrary to who he is. Paul says this in Romans 1 verse 18, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Wait a second, I thought, I thought God was love. Like, I, I, I didn't think God was angry. Isn't that, isn't that in the Old Testament? Like, isn't God angry in the Old Testament? No, 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 this is Paul. This is the New Testament. This is New Covenant. God is angry at sin. He hates sin. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter two, that because of our sin nature, we'll get to here in just a second. Paul says this, we are objects of the wrath of God. God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin. And we see examples of that all throughout the scripture with the flood or with Sodom and Gomorrah. God's wrath, his anger is poured out on sin because he hates sin. Jude, the brother of Jesus said this because God hates sin. Jude says this, we should hate sin too. We should hate sin too. Jesus said in Revelation 21 to John, when he was speaking of John to the things that are to come, when Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom here on this earth and we'll live in this eternal state in this new heavens and new earth, a new city that's gonna come down out of heaven to earth. We're gonna have these new bodies. Everything's gonna be, uh, the, all the old stuff Jesus says is gonna be gone. I'm gonna make everything new. It's all gonna be back to the way I originally designed it and intended it for it to be. And Jesus says this, nothing impure will enter this kingdom. Nothing impure will enter the presence of God. Why? because God is eternally holy. He is infinitely holy and nothing less than his own holiness can be in his presence. Our sin is so terrible and offensive to God that it took an outrageous sacrifice to satisfy his wrath against sin, the death of his son. And so if you ever wanna think about how serious your sin is, how big of a deal it is to God, because sometimes we, it's not a big deal to us. Just remind yourself, it's so serious to God that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross to take his wrath against sin upon himself. You see, there's an old word 
that was in the old versions of the Bible that we've lost today. And it's an important word. And in the newer translations of the Bible, it's the right intentions. It's, 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 it's right on that they've made it easier to understand, easier language so that it's easier to understand. And that's what we should do with the scripture, not losing its meaning, but we should always be trying to make sure it's, it's uh, communicating to us in our, in our language and what we, how we would speak today, what the Bible's actually saying. But there's an important word that we've kind of lost the, the, the meaning of in, in, in the scripture. And uh, it, it's this word, it's propitiation. Propitiation, and here's what it means. It means the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. And so in the New Testament, sometimes you'll read that Jesus's death on the cross was a sacrifice for our sin, or that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood, or that Jesus was the sacrifice of atonement, shedding his blood for our sin. What's happening there is a modern, easier to understand way of translating this word propitiation, which literally means Jesus, the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus took all the wrath of God for sin upon himself. That's what happened. That's how serious sin is to God. He poured out his wrath for sin on his son, Jesus, when Jesus died on that cross. So Jesus is our propitiation. He's the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath against us who committed the sin. Next, sin is inherited. Sin is inherited. Cain inherits his sinful desires from his parents, and it gets worse and darker than Adam and Eve could have ever imagined. They had no idea. I mean, talk about the knowledge of good and evil, right? The experience of good and evil. I mean, they had no idea the experiences that were to come from sin. This sin is inside of us. It's called a sin nature. That's why David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. My, I was conceived in the moment of conception in sin and with sinful desires. Psalm 38, it's why the wicked go astray from birth. We have to teach kids to do right, not to do wrong. Kids find out how to do wrong all by themselves, right? You have to teach them how to do right. It's because we are brought forth, as David said, in iniquity and we go astray from birth, Psalm 58. Romans five, Paul says it like this. Sin entered the world through one man and death through that sin. So the curse of sin is death and sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's sin. So Paul says sin entered the world and became, and so we all became sinners. And so death came right along with it. And so death, the penalty of sin, the curse of sin is now for all of us as well. So sin entered the world through one man and death through that sin. So Death, Paul says, came to all men through one man's sin. We inherit this sinful nature. It's what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter two, that by our nature, we are objects of the wrath of God. He's talking about our sin nature, that from birth, we desire to rebel against God and we run towards sin. Jesus said this, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. <laughs> Jesus, thank you. You didn't come to condemn. You love me. You care about me. You're not going to judge me. You're okay with everything. You know, you, you're just, man, Jesus, you're great. And Jesus like, I, yeah, man, that, that's true. You know, that's right. Uh, but I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you because you stand condemned already. Oh, that kind of hurts. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, you stand condemned already. Like as you are, you're condemned before God because of your sin. As you are, you're condemned. Another word is damned. As you are, you are damned to hell because of your sin. And so Jesus said, I, I didn't come to, ju to judge you, to condemn you. I came to save you because you were already condemned before God. By your very nature, you were condemned before God because you are a sinner from birth. This sin is inherited. Next, this sin is pervasive. What do we mean by pervasive? We mean totally and completely sinful, sinful from head to toe. We are totally and completely sinful. In Genesis chapter six, it says this, God saw every desire in their heart was wicked and only evil all the time. 
Just a couple chapters later after Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter six, that's how fast and how terrible sin progresses and how evil it gets. By Genesis six, God looks down on humanity and sees that our hearts are totally wicked, totally evil. And so then his wrath is poured out against our sin and the flood came. That's why Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, verse nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our hearts are sick. We can't trust our feelings. We can't trust our emotions. They will lead us astray every time. They are not a valid source of truth or reality. Paul said this in Romans chapter one, we think up foolish thoughts about God and we suppress the truth. So we, we can't trust our thoughts because our minds have been affected by sin. Paul said this in Romans seven. So I know nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells inside of me. So the scripture is telling us we are totally and completely sinful. It's pervasive. It's affected every part of who we are. Our minds, our thoughts, our bodies, our will, our emotion, every part of who we are has been affected and cursed by sin. Sounds a little bit different than the cute little meme that says you're enough, right? Oh, you're, you're good enough. You, you can do it. You, you are enough. You're more than enough. That's what the world tells us. That's what a lot of us and we see posted on social media. You're enough. You're good enough. You can do it. Doesn't sound like that to me. That sounds like a lie. That's not good news because every day I realize I'm not enough. That's terrible news, actually. It's hopeless news. Because every day my experience is, no, I, I'm not enough. I, I can't do it. This God is holy and righteous. I, I'm sinful. And the Bible actually says there's no one good. There's no not one. So every time you see a post like that or anytime someone tries to encourage you and they mean well, you're, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You never will be good enough. The Bible says in Romans 3, all of our righteous deeds, all the good things that we try to do, all the do-betters and try-harders that we, that we try to do, it's all filthy rags in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. We need to make sure we're believing the truth of Scripture, not cute inspirational memes and, and posts. Next, sin seeks to redefine. Sin always seeks to redefine. Redefine what? Well, redefine what's true. Redefine what's bad for us. Redefine what's good for us. It redefines success. It redefines failure. Most of the time in the scripture, and it's probably been true in your life, when people are failing, they don't even know it. They think they're actually succeeding. But they're actually failing. They've redefined sin. And we do this when we deceive ourselves and we spin these illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. And a popular way this looks today, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you've even said this before, but a popular way we spin our bad decisions as good ones is we say things like this, God wouldn't create you like that and then expect you not to indulge. Man, love is love. Love who you want. God wouldn't create you like that and then hold it against you for indulging in that. But there's nothing that could be further from the truth because that's not the way we were created. The creation, the design that God made was good, but it has been marred by sin. The Latin phrase is imago Dei. We were created as image bearers. In the image of God, we were created. And it was good. That design was good. It was perfect. But when we sinned, Sin marred the masterpiece. It destroyed the artwork completely and totally. It destroyed the image of God that we were created to be and designed to have. The design was good, but our desires are sinful. Ever since that day, our desires have been sinful and wicked. They are not Good. Peter says this, that it's wrong, it's sinful, it's evil to twist the scripture. And when you do that, you do that to your own destruction. That it's evil to say that our 
bad, sinful desires are somehow good and then even begin to identify ourselves in terms of that desire or that sin. And Peter says, we do that to our own destruction. God is not trying to trick us. There's not some sort of secret code to figure out the Bible. You don't have to be a scholar to find out what's sinful and what isn't. It's very plain. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. There's a path before us that often seems right. We think it's right. It feels right. But remember, we can't trust our thoughts. We can't trust our feelings. Seems right, looks right, feels right, but it ends in death. Why? Because we redefine our bad decisions as good ones. We redefine success. We redefine failure. That's what sin does. And then finally, sin seeks to destroy. Sin always seeks to destroy. God says sin, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and wants to devour you. Literally, the idea in Hebrew here is an ambush. It's a trap that's been set. And the nature of a trap, the nature of an ambush is that you don't see it until it's too late. Sin is always an illusion, promising something it cannot deliver and has no intention of delivering on. It's a scam. The crouching that God refers to in chapter four, verse seven is a destruction from an ambush that's hidden. You don't see it until it's too late. That's why the Bible says the pleasure of sin lasts only a short while. Now, if you're here and you would say, man, there's no pleasure in sin. Sin's not fun. I would say you're a liar because there's a lot of sin that's pretty fun. Okay. Okay. And uh, I think some of you, if you've dabbled in some sin, then uh, like almost all of us have, you know, some of it's kind of fun. It is. Okay. Let's just be honest. Let's be real. But the Bible says that that fun lasts for a short moment and then boom, the trap is set. You're ambushed. And then you experience the destruction of that sin because the pleasure of sin only lasts a short moment. While sin compels us to act against others for the sake of ourselves. And that just ends up destroying ourselves and others all at the same time. Sin destroys our mind, our body, our soul, our heart, our will. They are all cursed because of sin. And so now let me give you two challenges based on everything we've talked about, about sin. Two challenges. Here's the first one. First challenge is this. Don't redefine what God has already defined. Don't even try. Don't don't even seek to redefine what God has already defined. This is arrogant and evil. It's putting yourself in the place of God. It's idolatrous. It's saying that I can somehow redefine what God has already defined for me in his word. We must confess that we are terrible judges of right and wrong. You need to confess that. I'm a terrible judge of what is right and wrong. We are unable to make that judgment because we have a tendency towards self-deception and self-gratification. We are terrible judges. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, verse two, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. So anytime you're agreeing with the culture about what's right and wrong, there should be a, a warning sign going off in your mind. I'm agreeing with the culture. Wait a second, I got a problem here. I, I'm agreeing with popular opinion. Danger, danger, danger. Do not conform yourself to the behavior, customs, beliefs of this world, Paul says. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. You see, you give your life to Jesus. You receive his Holy Spirit in you. It's giving you a hatred for sin, a love for holiness. And now God is giving you this new way of thinking. And as you study God's word. And as you grow spiritually, you begin to think differently. You begin to think more and more like God. And then Paul says, you will learn to know God's will for your life, which is good and pleasing and perfect. But you got to transform the way that you think. And only God can do that in you and through you. That's the first challenge. Second challenge is this. Don't let what you redefined define you. 
Don't let what you've redefined like your sin or the spinning of bad decisions into good ones. Don't let those failures define who you are. Don't try to identify with those things and be controlled by those things. Don't let what you've redefined define you. You were created in the image of God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just tell you today, here's what Christians believe about you regardless, that you were created in the image of God. You were created and you have this imago Dei. It's Latin for image of God. You are an image bearer of God because you were created by God. That's what we believe about you. Here's the problem. As we already said, this image has been tarnished by sin. It's been cursed by sin. But when you come to faith in Jesus, you are born again and this image of God is renewed. And then as you follow Jesus, you enter this process, the Bible calls sanctification, where that image is being renewed each and every day. And then one day when Jesus returns and we're with him forever in the kingdom of God, and we've got these new bodies and the new city on a new earth, we will ultimately and finally see this image of God completely and fully restored and renewed. The process will be over and we will live in and experience the original good design and image of God that God originally intended for us. One day we will know it. One day we will experience the fullness of what this image is supposed to be. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Some of you were once like that. This is after all the sins that he just listed before that I read to you earlier. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. In other words, here's what Paul said. Here's what he's saying. Don't let what you redefine, don't let your sin define you. That's not who you are anymore. You were like that, but when you gave your life to Jesus, your, your sin was forgiven, you're, you're made right with God. And now, as a Christian, you may struggle with some of these sins, just as I do, but it's not who you are anymore. You weren't made that way. That's not your identity. And so those things do not define you. You are now right with God through calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you were created by God and in Christ, you're a child of God. That's who you are now. You're not your past. You're not your sin that you struggle with today. That's not how we identify ourselves. We are who God says we are. We're not our sin. We are who God says we are. And God says we are his kids. So don't let what you redefine define you. That may have been who you were, but it's not anymore. You're a child of God now. What's hard about that, if you're like me, is oftentimes your sin, your past will replay in your mind, almost like a movie trailer. I feel like I'm often reminded of the bad decisions, the sin my past and reminds me that I'm not a good person, that I am a sinner, that I fall short. My sin today reminds me that I, I can't do better or try harder my way into the kingdom of God or to be right with God. That's impossible. The Bible says good people don't go to heaven. I'm not good enough. So, how can I, how can you be right with a holy and righteous God? How is that even possible? Well, Paul tells us how it's possible in Colossians chapter one. He says this, this includes you. You were, you were once far away from God. You, you were his enemies in your sin. You were separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. But watch this. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. You, you can't go into the presence of God, but God can bring you into his own presence. And now you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So through the death of his son, taking on the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, 
Paul says, God reconciles us. He, he fixes that divide. He fixes that, that bridge. We couldn't get to God. So God came to us and reconciled us to himself. And he brought us into his presence through the death of his son. And when we give our lives to Jesus, our sin is forgiven. We're made holy and blameless. We are now without a single fault. And there's more. Watch this. Paul says this in Colossians chapter two. He says, so he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away. It's canceled. Your, your sin, the record of your sin, it's been canceled and taken away. How? It was nailed to the cross. The record of your sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So Jesus, through his death on the cross, has victory over sin and death and the devil himself. So now no one can accuse you. There's no condemnation, Paul would say, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So watch this, the cross doesn't cower to your sin. The cross cancels your sin. Jesus doesn't cower to your sin. No, Jesus has victory over your sin. In Romans five, Paul says it like this, God's grace is greater than our sin. And he goes on to say that grace rules. And you're like, yeah, grace rules, right? That's not how you meant it. When Paul says grace rules, the Greek word there is ruling like a king. In other words, what he's saying is grace reigns. Grace reigns like a king over your sin. And so I may be a great sinner, but God is an even greater savior. His grace reigns. Shane Bernard wrote a song years ago called Embracing Accusations. And in the song, he writes some really confusing things. It's really dark at first. He says this, could the father of lies, that's the devil, be telling me the truth of God tonight? <laughs> that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Could the devil be telling me the truth of God tonight? He said, the devil is preaching to me that cursed are those that can't abide. The devil is singing over me an age old song that I'm cursed and gone astray. And then Shane writes this, he's right. The, the devil's right, Shane? Yeah, he says, he's right, hallelujah. He's right. I want you to listen to this song and see what Shane had to say and why these words and the song he wrote is really, really, Great news.